Okay, guys, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. And we are continuing in 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 21 today. But we've been off of this for a couple weeks now. And just since we're going to since we're going to finish chapter one, I thought we would just quickly review where we've been and where he's headed. So we know that uh, Peter basically gave an introduction, introduced himself as the writer of this book, as an apostle, right? As a as a servant of Christ, a bond servant, as a slave. In the opening verses, he reminded them of their mighty salvation that they had received all by the grace of God. Really, verses 1-4 through four was dealing with the salvation that they had received by the grace of God, that they had been called by God, effectually called by, the, by, the, by His grace, that the faith that they had was given by God as a gift. And all of the promises that we see in verse 4, these precious and magnificent promises, really all of the promises in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, were fulfilled in Christ. And so all of these promises are theirs because they are in Christ And if you guys remember, He encouraged them to make their calling and election sure by examining their lives in verses 5-7 through and really down through verse 11. Um, He he spoke about the fruits of salvation. Remember in verses 5-7, through these qualities, these graces that would be there, that would be be a reality in their life. And, And so He said, examine your life. Examine your life. And if these things are, are present and are increasing... Hey, Josh. If these things are present and are increasing, then they could have confidence. They could have confidence that their, that their salvation was real is basically what he's saying. And that they're going to be welcomed into the kingdom. And so he speaks much of, of growing in their knowledge of God's Word. That's what we've seen a lot. He uses the word knowledge and he'll continue to do that. He desires to remind them. A few weeks ago we talked about that. To remind them of the Gospel. To remind them of these foundational truths of the Word of God. He said, although you already know these things, we've kind of joked about it, but we do. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded because we forget. And they're such glorious truths. He even said, even... Basically, after he's dead and gone through his writings, that he desired that they would be reminded of these things. That they, that they be strong in their faith. And remember what he's thinking. False teachers are coming. False teachers are coming. So that's really the, the context of this entire letter. He wants them to be able to stand against these false teachers because they will tie even a true believer up into, up into uh, doctrinal knots if you're not prepared. And so, that's what he's talking about. Uh, We do know one lie that these false teachers believed. And it's revealed in chapter 3 and that's that they denied His second coming. And so he was really beginning to address that last week uh, or last time we met and went over Peter a couple weeks ago. In verses 16 through 18, he talked about that that the... the, uh, reality of Jesus Christ coming, that it was confirmed by, by His eyewitness account on that mountain of transfiguration. That He didn't make it up. They didn't make it up. They weren't fables. They weren't stories. But he were, he, Him and, and James and John were all eyewitnesses. And then He's going to continue that argument today. Uh, obviously, it's the next three verses. So that's what He's going to do. Going to do. He's going to continue His argument Really further confirming the truth of Christ's coming is what we're going to see today. Through the Scriptures themselves. And so we find, when, we, when you read the Word of God, even some of the texts that I read in, in Psalm 119, but really throughout the Word of God, we find the truth of the Scriptures and the authority that they carry ultimately in the Scriptures themselves. In other words, the Scriptures testify of themselves that they are from God. That they carry authority. So that's uh, we'll talk about that more as we go throughout. But that's ultimately 
Why do we know this Word is God's Word? Because the Scriptures themselves testify. But we will, we will speak more to that. So ultimately, what, why am I saying that? Ultimately, the Scriptures don't even need our confirmation to say that they're true. They are true. Here's a few texts of, of, of just the Scriptures speaking for themselves. Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, verse, uh, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. You know, ultimately that's why we know God's word is true, because God's word says it's true. Somebody may say, well that's circular. Every argument is circular. But it, it's, it's the authority that Within an argument, every argument is circular and ends up having an authority. Ours is just the ultimate authority, God's Word. But we will look at some uh, even ways that there's God in His grace has given us evidence that His Word is divine. And then John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in your truth, or in the truth. Your Word is truth. The Scriptures testify of its own authority. And then listen real quickly uh, to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Right to the Thessalonians, he says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. So Paul already understood at that time that what he spoke was the Word of God. And so the Scriptures testify to their own authority, to their own truthfulness. So with that being said, let's turn, or let's look at our text today. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going I'm to read verses 16 through 18 again, because it is all one section, and we will be looking at verses 19 through 21 today. Further confirmation, the title of the message confirmation from the Scriptures. Really the idea of further confirmation of the reality of the second coming of Christ. And so, let's look at verses 16-21. through 21. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Father, we, we come to You, Lord, and we just ask You to give us understanding of Your Word. Father, I just ask You to pour out Your Spirit on us, Father, that You would give us uh, understanding that You would convict us, Father, that You would encourage us, that You would strengthen us. I ask for divine assistance from Your Spirit to help me to proclaim Your Word, Father, with clarity, and just ask for Your Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, <clears throat> so if you have, your, uh, if you have your, your bulletin on the back, you'll see it outlined. There's four points today. And we're looking at, again, we're looking at the Scriptures today. The prophetic word there in verse 19. And so we're going to see three things, or four things from the prophetic word or the Scriptures. And the first one is this, in the first part of verse 19, that they bring further confirmation of His coming. They bring further confirmation of His coming. This is going to take just a minute to work through this because this is, I was telling some people Wednesday, that this passage here, this phrase here, there's three different interpretations. That's always fun, and they're, but they're actually they're all three. They're all three rather. I think there's truth in all three of them, and so I'll go through them real quickly. 
So the NAS, well, hold on just a second. The prophetic word, let's talk about that for a minute. The prophetic word is just, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures here in this verse. When he says, so we have the prophetic word. It's just the Old Testament Scriptures which point to Christ. I think probably, I probably even more specifically because of the context of what he's dealing with, those those. Those scriptures that dealt that are that dealt with his parousia, his second coming, but really it would apply to the, to the to the entire Old Testament, the scriptures. That's what the prophetic word he's dealing with. And this is the this is the phrase right here. That next phrase he says. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's the NAS, the, the New American Standard, made more sure. If you have an ESV, it's going to say more fully confirmed. I believe. The New King James will say confirmed. The King James says more sure word of prophecy. Okay, there are three interpretations to exactly what he's saying. It's just one of those phrases that interpreters are, that's difficult to go from the Greek to the English. That's what it is. Men that are much smarter than I am, okay? And so, but the three, here's the first interpretation of what, of what he's actually saying. Now, I will say this, guys. It doesn't change Peter's argument whatsoever. Whichever interpretation... I see truth in all three of them, then I'll tell you which one that I think is really his argument. But it doesn't change the, the argument of the passage of what he's trying to prove here. The first one here, I'm just going to quote Thomas Schreiner. He holds to this first interpretation. And he says this, this is his quote here, the transfiguration renders more certain the interpretation of the prophetic word. Okay, so what he's saying, in other words is the transfiguration that that Peter talked about preceding this confirms the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ's return. So the prophets said this, and Peter's eyewitness account further confirms what they said. Now I think there is truth. I think there is truth in that. I don't think that's his ultimate argument, but I think there is truth in that. I mean, obviously. What the prophet said, that Scripture is true, and, and, and the apostles' eyewitness account, of course, we have it re- even that recorded in Scripture now, it, it would, in a sense, further confirm that. So Thomas Schreiner, for one, and, and a few others, believe that's what that phrase means. A different comparison, uh, so, so you have that comparison, now a different comparison, almost entirely opposite comparison, is held by John MacArthur, for one, and many others, so I, so I read, so I studied ten commentaries preparing for this sermon. And I have basically five guys that are dead. Some of the older guys. I like having a good balance. And then five, five more current guys. John MacArthur being one of them. And I know all the old dead guys, they all held to this interpretation, including MacArthur and most of the other men. And what they say is this. That, they, they say that Peter's saying this. That as reliable as Peter's eyewitness experience was, the prophetic word of Scripture is more sure. Okay? So it's actually an opposite comparison. That's what I'm going to hold to. Okay? I'm going to agree with the majority here. I think... And see, the wording in the English translations are very different. Like the ESV and the King James, it's very different. But... And then there's a third interpretation. That there's really no comparison at all. That it's simply being, that it's interpreted most reliable or very certain. In other words, Peter is simply declaring that we can say with certainty that the prophetic word of the Old Testament refers to Christ's second coming. Did you, did you get those three? I think there's truth in all three of them. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I, think, I think all three of these have powerful truths. Uh, for those alive back then, I think the apostles' experience would have indeed been a powerful confirmation of what the Old Testament, Old Testament Scripture said. So I think, there's, I think there's truth in that. And, and I think, of course, it's true that, that it is, it's certain that the Old Testament prophets um, and their prophecies of His second coming are, are, are most reliable. It's the Word of God. It's Scripture's. But I'm going to agree with that second interpretation who say that, that, that the, the literal meaning of the phrase is closer to this. 
we have a more reliable word. And, and actually the King James seems to be closer to what MacArthur and others tend to think that the, the, the more literal rendering of that phrase means. Simply, we have a more reliable word even than, or, than my testimony or my eyewitness account. And I think that's all that's being said. But having said all of that, I think there's I don't think these arguments are really you even really have to hold them against one another. Because I think there's truth in all of them. But I think that's what he's saying. Hey, if you don't believe my eyewitness account, go to the scriptures. That's what he's saying. So that's where I'm gonna go with it. I think it's I think it's um, I think that I think that is consistent with the testimony of Scripture as a whole. That the scriptures is always the more sure word than any experience, even that of an apostle. And so Peter's argument is simple. Again, remembering the context of the letter and of his argument that he's anticipating, he's going to start dealing with these false teachers in the next chapter. His argument is simple. These false teachers are liars who make up fables, who make up stories to exploit you out of their greed. That's what we see in chapter 2. But what I tell you is the truth. What I tell you is the truth. Our eyewitness experience, we saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears, and even more so, the Scriptures themselves. Oh, And ultimately, all of Scripture. This phrase, this prophetic word, is dealing specifically with the Old Testament Scriptures, but ultimately that's true of all Scripture. Which Peter already understood... Remember, we've looked at this verse. We'll deal with it here in a few weeks. But in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says this, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, talking about Paul's writings, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of Scripture's. So Peter already had an understanding that what Paul wrote is Scripture. And you can see Paul saying the same thing about Luke's writings. And then even in the passage we read a while ago to the Thessalonians, Paul understood that what they spoke was the Word of God. So it's all of Scripture. Of course, now we have, we have the entire Old and New Testament canon. And so we have a word made more sure than anybody's experience. The Word of God, the Scriptures. So the Scriptures, guys, point number one, we simply see about the Scriptures that the Scriptures bring further confirmation of His coming. That's His argument here. If you don't believe me, believe the Scriptures. Go back and read what the prophets say. And secondly, we see in verse 19, 19b, that they are a light to heed they're a light to heed. The NAS says, uh, says, so we have, a, have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. But I like the way the New King James, for example, says, you do well to heed. You do well to heed. Why? Why, Why does he say that you do well to heed? Why is it so important that they heed? Well, because it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God and not of man. Because it's compared to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's what we see in that text. You have the prophetic Word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What does it mean by this dark place, beloved? He simply means dirty. Filthy, spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. Murky blackness of this fallen world is what that phrase means. Have you guys noticed that we live in a dark world? Doesn't take, doesn't take a whole lot to realize that, does it? We live in a very, very dark world. Very dark world. And really, the idea of darkness, when the Bible speaks about darkness, like John mentions light and darkness a lot in his epistles, and, and in, his, in his gospel, darkness really has two elements in the sense of morality, immorality. Is, is, is immorality not exalted in our culture? 
It's like immorality is exalted. Have you guys noticed that? It's like, okay, whether you have the TV on or whether you're just on social media, so a commercial on the TV or these ads that pop up, they're just just in your face. It could be something as simple as a, a commercial about insurance or a commercial about some kind of medical uh, product and, and they have to they have to you know have the, the picture of the two guys holding hands and uh, or the two women it's just in your face immorality is exalted because because this world is dark and it's growing darker now there are pockets when God moves yeah there's there's pockets that uh you can definitely see his light shining, but our culture is just increasingly, increasingly dark. And also darkness in the sense of error, false, false, that which is false. Our world screams of tolerance, does it not? Tolerance is the greatest virtue, except when it comes to tolerating Christ, right? They're not too tolerant of John 14, 6. We heard that yesterday. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. All of a sudden, tolerance goes out the door. Because we live in a dark world. But the Word of God is a lamp, is what he's saying here in verse 19. We have the prophetic Word, the Scriptures made more sure, to which you do well. You had better pay attention to what he's saying. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Beloved, His God is a lamp. His God is a lamp. Listen to Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Can you guys identify with that as a believer? Yeah, it lights the way. It it lights the path in the darkness. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. How are we going? How's any young man, old man... Young woman, the phrase says young man, but it applies to all believers. How are we going to keep our way pure and while we're in this dark place? It's through the Word of God. It's through the, the lamp guiding us, protecting us from, like the writer of Proverbs says, from the immoral woman, right? Gives us wisdom from the, from the, from the immorality of this world. That's how we can keep our way pure as believers, through the lamp, through the Word of God. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that comes through one way. The Scriptures. It's a lamp. It's a guide. 2 Timothy 3.15 Paul writing to Timothy, he says the Scriptures are what give us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures. The Scriptures are what give us wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ. In other words, by means of the Scriptures, through the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God delivers us. He delivers us from the domain of darkness. From that dark place. He delivers us. So it's a lamp in the sense that It provides the way of salvation for those who are steeped in darkness, for those who are enslaved to darkness, for those who are caught up and enslaved to sin. It's the Scriptures. The very thing that the world hates is their greatest hope. And that's why we proclaim it. That's why we're so often misunderstood by the world. They think we're just shoving it down their throats. We're not shoving it down their throats. We're proclaiming, we're throwing them the lifeboat. This is the lifeboat. It's the lamp. And it guides us, obviously, as believers. Guides us. You know, I think of Pilgrim's Progress, that journey, that pilgrimage. And it's, we're, we're on a pilgrimage and it's the Scriptures. So, it, so, it, so He uses the Scriptures that gives us wisdom for salvation. And we are sanctified in the truth, right? That's what Christ said. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so, beloved, your life needs to be governed by the word of God. Amen? I love seeing y'all's head nod. Knowing you guys understand what I'm saying. But our lives as Christians that need to be governed by God's word. 
which will allow us to stand and not be tossed to and fro. Right? Not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that clever false teachers are going to be bringing. Okay? Some of them may even stand and say, for those of us who were downtown yesterday, I have two theology degrees. And they're going to come with their clever arguments. But if you're rooted in the Word of God, it don't matter if you have a hundred theology degrees. This lady claimed she had two theology degrees, so she had something important to say. But she didn't believe what the Word of God says. She didn't believe something as simple that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So her two theology degrees are going to damn her to hell. It's very, very simple. So man, you don't believe the Scriptures. So don't boast in your two theology degrees. That's an example of a of a false teacher that could come and, and could confuse a, a, a believer who's not grounded in the Word. Well, this lady must know what she's talking about. But as long as we root our knowledge in the Word of God, we won't get tossed to and fro. So thirdly, we see, uh, the third thing we see about the prophetic Word, the Scriptures, is they will guide you to the end in the, in the last part of verse 19. You know, it's amazing. You never know how an outline is going to turn out in a passage. So the first three points are in one verse, and then the last one is in two verses. So you just never know. That's just the way it worked out. But that's the last thing we see here in verse 19, is that the Scriptures will guide you to the end. To the very end is what we see thirdly. Verse 19, We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The day dawns. What is that talking about, guys? Very, very simply, the return of Jesus Christ. That day. When that day dawns. When that day dawns, this dark place will be no more. The day will dawn. Christ will reign. Right now, it's a dark place. That's where we're at right now. The Pilgrim's Progress. We're in the dark place. We're in that, that dark, wretched world that's in opposition to Christ. And so we need that Word of God to guide us. But the dawning of that day is coming. The dawning of that day is coming. And if you're not in Christ, you need to be warned. The dawning of that day is coming. It is the, the biggest reality that will... It it, it will be the greatest event ever in the history of our world when Christ comes back. And what a horrible day that will be if you're not ready. So understand that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That that will affect everybody that's ever lived. Everybody will stand before Christ when He comes back. Even those that that have died thousands of years ago, the, the one who created the the universe out of nothing, it will be no problem for Him whatsoever to resurrect even the damned. To resurrect the wicked and give them a resurrected body too. Daniel 12.2 talks about that. It says the righteous... and let me, let me read that. that. It just popped in my mind. But many people will say, I've heard, I think Jehovah's Witness say that you know, nowhere does the Old Testament speak specifically about hell. Um, listen, to, listen to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. I know the verse, but I don't want to get it wrong here. And, and he's talking about this final resurrection. Where are you at, Daniel? There it is. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to degra- disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's talking about that final resurrection. Beloved, when everybody will be there. Not just the believers will get a resurrected body. All people will get a resurrected body. Some unto eternal life and some unto eternal damnation. So that day's coming. But as a believer, be encouraged. Be encouraged that that day's coming. Listen to Paul's language in Romans 13, 12. Really the, 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 the imagery of the, the darkness of the night and the light, the dawning of that day. He says, the night is almost gone, speaking of this dark place, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Amen? And then he says, he talks about the morning star 
which is a, and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, no doubt that the phrase morning star is referring to Christ. He's referred to as the star throughout the scriptures. There's several places. We'll look at a couple numbers back at the beginning. In your Bibles, Numbers 24-17, speaking of the Messiah, says a star shall come forth from Jacob. And then there's, there's a few others, but we'll go all the way to the end. Obviously, it's more clearly revealed here who it is. Jesus speaking, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So this morning star is talking about Christ. Literally what that phrase means, guys, He's the light bringer. Jesus is the light bringer. And is that not what He said about Himself? He said, I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. He's the light bringer. And even being the... He's called the Word, is He not? The Scriptures are the light. The Scriptures are the lamp. Christ Himself is the light. So He is the light. He is the light of the world. He is the one who delivers and rescues from darkness. And He says what? Come to Me. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He he bids sinners to come to the light. And that's that's why we do beg. I like like Shiloh. He, He came up with this phrase, and I really like it. He says, the Scriptures or God, well, same thing. God's not begging you to come. But I am. Right? We're ambassadors for Christ. Imploring you to come. Now, in that language, actually, I don't mean to correct Shiloh here, because I do agree with that. In that language, it's, 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 it's literally God begging through us. We plead with you. It's if, it's if it's God is begging you through us. But we're the ones that beg. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. So God's not begging you. But I'm begging you. I'm begging you to come to Him. Come to your senses and come to Jesus Christ. You see, we're all created to worship. Are we not? We are, we are, we are made in the image of God and we are created as worshipers. All men are worshipers. The most hardened atheist is a worshiper. You know who he worships? Himself. That's who He worships. But we are all called to worship. So what's the message of the Gospel? Come and worship the one true God. The language of coming to Christ is a language of dying to yourself. Of repentance. God is seeking. Jesus told the woman at the well that the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. He's seeking those. I can remember in my day, when I, in, in time in my life for many years, I worshipped myself. Everything was about me. Everything was about me. My comforts, my pleasure. It didn't matter who got my way. If you got my way, then I was just going to get in a fight with you. And I was good at it. I was, I was very degrading with my language. I wanted my way. I worshipped me and my life. And praise be to God, through His grace... That He made me into a worshiper of the one true God. And that's what He's doing. That's what God is doing in this world. That is what He's up to. He is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He goes to the dregs. And He goes to the gutters. And He goes to the sewers and finds the most wicked, wretched people and brings them in. Does He not? You know how I know that? The same way you guys know it. Because He saved you. And He saved me. I I still, there are things I think about in my life, as we were discussing yesterday, Kelly, driving through my hometown, and there are still memories that haunt me. But I know that God has saved me and forgiven me. And He's restored me. I'm I'm ashamed of it. Paul talks about those things that we were once ashamed of. But we've been redeemed. And He can redeem you today, no matter who you are, but you must come to Him. You must realize you are a worshiper. But this is what it looks like. The Thessalonians, and then I'll get back to where I'm going, guys. A good picture of repentance in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul describing these Thessalonians, he says, they turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God. And so that's what God is saying. Hey, you're a worshiper. You have idols. You have a God that you're worshiping. And God is commanding you to repent, to lay that down and come to Him. What's an idol? Anything you put in place of God. An idol is, is, is something that men turn to. They turn to for comfort. They turn to for pleasure. They turn to for everything, really. It's what their life's consumed with. I tell the guys at the bus station that over and over and over. I said, guys, your drug is your idol. That's your God. That's what you turn to. And it's going to let you down. It may give you temporary pleasure. The pleasures of sin is for a season, but it will let you down. There is one God. One God and repentance is laying down your idols and coming to the one God. And He can give you joy and peace like you've never experienced. But I'm not even going to tell you that's why you should come. That's just the benefit of it. You should come to flee from His wrath. Flee from judgment. And, and, and just understand that He is mighty to save and He can save you. And so, that, so, so that's so Christ, getting back to what I was saying, He is that, he is, that day is coming, right? The morning star is coming. The light bringer is coming. He came the first time to save. He's coming the second time to judge. But He is the light bringer. And, the, and this last phrase says this, uh, the morning star arises in your hearts. Tie it all together now, guys. I think simply what he's saying. This, this phrase uh, uh, arises in your hearts. This Christ, in other words, arising in your hearts. This is not talking about some little private, you know, um, feeling that, that you get in your heart about Jesus. It's not what it's saying. It's saying this as God's people. As God's people, you guys can agree with me on this. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Amen? We're being transformed. We're being sanctified. He does that through trials. He does it through really everything that goes on in our life. Obviously, He does it through the Word of God. But we're being transformed. We're being sanctified, made like Christ. But one day, beloved, one day that transformation will be made complete. It will be complete. That's what this is pointing to. I think John, the Apostle John, nails it of what this is talking about in 1 John 3 2. Really just describing that our that our faith is a react our faith one day will be a um, will be a reality. In 1 John 3 2, he says this, Beloved, now we are children of God. Amen. We're children of God. We're in this dark place. We're being sanctified. And it is not, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, that's the day, when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will no longer. Right now, we're in this dark place. We need the lamp of the Scriptures to guide us, to sanctify us. For those who are not in Christ, you need the Word of God to explain to you what Christ has done. You need the Word of God, the power of the Gospel. But us as believers, we need it. We need it in this dark place. But on that day, we will no longer need the light of the Scriptures. We will no longer need the lamp to guide us. Because why? Our faith will be sight. We will have the light. We will have Christ. We will know Him. We will know ourselves. The language that John that John just shared. We will be like Him and we will see Him just as He is. Our faith will be made sight. It's like this and then we'll move on to our last point. Beloved, think of a love, think of a love letter. Okay? Think of a love letter that, that maybe you have received from your, maybe your spouse. Maybe before you were married, you were separated for a time, but you received a letter. Right? You, oh, there's, I, love le- I love letters. But, but think about a letter. How, how you cherish the love letter from the one you love when you're separated for a time. But what happens? Once they're present, do you keep the letter in front of your face? No, you put it down. Because the reality is here. That's what he's saying in this text here. We, we need the lamp of the Word of God until that day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Our faith will be made a reality. 
It'll be made a reality. But right now, right now, that day's not come yet. Right now, the Scriptures are our lamp to guide us safely to our final destination. Okay, moving on to our last point. There's a question in front of it. Why are these three points true that we just looked at? Why are they true? And really, this is this is his argument right here, guys. In verses 20 and 21, because they come directly from God. That's why. That's why they bring further confirmation to, of His coming. That's why they are a light to heed. And that's why they will guide you to the end because the source of the Scriptures is God Himself. And this is Peter's argument. The Scriptures are what truly confirm the second coming of Christ because they come directly from the Lord. They are His words. In other words, beloved, we should, we should, uh, why should we value this love letter that we have in the Scriptures? Why should we value this love letter? Because the prophecies, all of them, are not a product of the prophet, but they come from God. We have the greatest love letter ever in the Scriptures. The, the Word of God. It's a love letter. It's a love letter is what it is to His people. Michael Green, he's a New Testament professor. And uh, he has one of the commentaries that I, that I was reading. He says this, <clears throat> Thus, we can rely on the apostolic account of the transfiguration because God spoke. So we can rely on that. Peter says, I heard the Father speak. I saw Christ in His glory. I heard the Father speak. And he says, and we can rely on the Scriptures because behind its human authors, God spoke. The prophets did not make up what they wrote. This is Peter's argument. It came from God. The word, the word interpretation in verse 20, <clears throat> there's a little, a, a little bit more uh, disagreement on what that word means, but I think it's really clear. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quote a couple guys that give the argument. And, then I, and I think really verse 21 clears it up. The word interpretation, I think, is more has the idea of origination. Like where, what was the source of, the, of these prophecies? The source, origination, with interpretation included as well. But Peter is arguing, his whole argument is origin of Scripture, as we'll see in verse 21. John Gill says about this, this phrase, this uh, in verse 20. Let me, let me read verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. John Gill says this, this phrase should be rendered, no prophecy of Scripture is of a man's own impulse, invention, or composition. Again, it's speaking more of origin. Interpretation is in there, John MacArthur said it's just an unfortunate English word they use. Um, so it's not that interpretation is not meant, but there's more to it. It's origin. Calvin says the same thing. Scripture didn't come from man or through the suggestions of man. Peter's argument is, where did it come from? And I think, again, verse 21 further states this. Look at verse 21. For, okay, here's his argument. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Verse 21, there's a negative statement and a positive. Very simply, that it came not from man, is Peter's argument, but it came from God. And isn't that always the argument nowadays? Oh, that's just written by man. God didn't really say that. Was that not the argument back at the beginning? Did God really say? It's the same argument, the same spirit. That's why I tell people who deny that the reality of, of, of uh, the Bible being God's Word. You're just echoing your father the devil. He said the same thing in the garden. And, and really until God opens a, a person's eyes through regeneration, they're going to have that, they're going to have that resistance. But, uh, but that's what we see here. Peter's argument is it didn't come from men. It came from God. And then, and then that phrase in the, in, the, in the NAS, it says ever. And I think some, depending on how it's worded, your English translation may say never or ever. He's saying the same thing. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
And I, like I said, I think one of them says, you know, was never made. But, but the idea, that's no prophecy was ever made. Old Testament, New Testament. All Scripture. 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture came from God. Breathed out by God. And it says in verse 21, men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Or men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That phrase moved, it means continually carried or borne along like a sailboat. Like a sailboat. These men were carried along by by the wind. Like, Like a sailboat carried by the wind. The Holy Spirit used men I think it's the KJV in the New King James that says holy men. just means men set apart. Set apart with their talents, right? God's their creator. With their very talents, with their insights that they have, the minds that God has given them, with their experiences, their personalities. Can you not see that in the Word of God? Different writers, you can see. Man, you can see the language, the flavor of John's writing or Matthew's writing. I like Mark's writing. Everything is immediately, immediately, immediately. But you can see the the different personalities. They're they're writing. They're being carried along by the Holy Spirit, but God is allowing them to use their personality. They're not robots. That's what it means. All the while keeping them from sin and error to record the very thoughts of God. In other words, they spoke and they wrote God's Word unlike the false prophets of old. And this, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, just real briefly. A couple of examples. Jeremiah 28, 16. Listen to the false prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And Peter says the same thing about these guys in their day. They speak fables. They speak something that they make up. But not the, not the prophets, not the apostles. They speak as the Holy Spirit carried them along. David says in 2 Samuel 23.2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His, words, or in His word was on my tongue. And then Jeremiah 4.1, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, completely different than the false prophets and the false teachers. Beloved, you and I have the Word of God. That's Peter's argument. We have the Word of God more sure than any experience of any man, even an apostle. We have the Word of God. And it's more sure in the sense that it's recorded for all generations. It's recorded. It's been kept. It's been preserved. It's more sure and more certain than any experience, but I will say this, we'll probably talk about this more once we get into chapter 2, but there's many who like to brag and boast about supposed experiences they had now, and it draws big crowds and lots of money. When people talk about, I had an experience and I died and went to heaven, they sell a lot of books by their uh, experiences. Okay, beloved, so in, so in closing, I want to share some information with you that will encourage you as the people of God. We're going we're gonna to look at some, uh, just some evidences that what we have is the Word of God, okay? So we do have a reliable source of documented evidence that, that, that really give us even more encouragement as believers that what we have is indeed the Word of God. And we'll look at a few of these real briefly. First of all, let's look at some manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. <clears throat> so we'll look, at, we'll look at three different writings. And we're going to look at some uh, manuscript evidence as compared to the New Testament and the manuscript evidence we have of that. I'm sure some of you guys have heard these, these type of things, but they're very, very fascinating. Very encouraging for the believer. These, these aren't real evidences. Now, these are not going to convert a sinner, but they're good for people to know. And it gives us just even more confidence. I don't have to have these to know that this is God's Word, but these are beautiful. The writings of Plato, for example, 
427 to 347 B.C. The earliest copy that was found was A.D. 900. That's a 1300 year time span from the time of the original to the first copies discovered. 1300 years and there were 210 copies. Okay, you got that? 1300 year time span, 210 copies. The writings of Aristotle. 384 to 322 B.C. Earliest copy found A.D. 1100. That's a 1400 year time span. 40 copies. The Gallic War by Julius Caesar written 100 to 44 B.C. Earliest copy A.D. 900. Roughly a thousand year time span. 251 copies. And there's many more you could look at. But the New Testament, written approximately A.D. 50 to A.D. 100, portions of it, portions, there were, there were portions of the New Testament that they found copies of as early as A.D. 100 to A.D. 150. Some of these within 30 years of the originals. 30 to 100 years. And entire books of the Old Testament completed by 150 to 200 A.D., and then the entire New Testament by A.D. 300. Um, but, but the time span, again, the time span to the first earliest copies of the New Testament, somewhere as early as 30 years, 30 to 100 years for portions of the, of the New Testament. The, the entire New Testament the time span was 200 years as compared to over a thousand years from some of these other writings. And guess how many guess how many copies that we have discovered? Early Greek manuscripts? Almost 6,000. 6,000 as compared to 40 of Aristotle. There's plenty of evidence for the skeptics. But the reality is they don't want the evidence. The evidence is here. That what... And what's amazing about that was 6,000 early manuscripts all within 200 years. Well, I don't know if all those are because some of them came much later. But many of them come in early. We can open our Bibles and open these early manuscripts, these Greek copies, and see that what we have matches up with what they have. It's amazing. And we keep discovering more. Which means we can keep making our... English translations even better. So it's a, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God how He has preserved His Word and how He allows us. He just simply allows us to make these discoveries and to match up what we have now to what we had then. And it's the very Word of God. It says the same thing. Archae archaeological discoveries. I'm not going to go through them for lack of time. You can look these up. But... But any archaeological discovery, they always, they have always confirmed what the Bible says. Whether you're talking about a person, a city that they've discovered, and never at once has contradicted the Bible. Not one time. How about science? There's many things we could look at in science. But real briefly, I'll just uh, look at one thing. Science expresses the universe in five terms. Time, space, matter, power, and motion, right? God declared those in the first two verses of our Bibles. And Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 revealed such truths to the Hebrews when they received it in 1450 B.C. In the beginning, time, God created power, the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, and the Spirit of God moved. Motion all right there at the beginning of Genesis. And give men time and they'll catch up with the Bible. There are many other examples of scientific discoveries that, that have been made, obviously. Only to find out that, that that particular truth had always been tucked away in the Scriptures. That's a fascinating study. I'm sure some of you guys have already, you know some of these things that I'm talking about. But I think there's no greater proof, if, if somebody wants proof, outside proof, outside of the Bible itself, and actually, this is inside the Bible as well. Um, I guess if you think of it like that. There's, there's, there's no greater proof that the Scriptures are divine than fulfilled prophecy. 
fulfilled prophecy. Hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled in the New, down to the minute detail. I just think of Christ Himself. Speaking about where He's going to be born. He'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 verse 2. That He'd be born to a virgin, Isaiah 7 14. So it's talking about where He's going to be born, how's He going to be born. That He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. So we got where he's born, how he's born, how he'll be betrayed, or, or uh, yeah, how he'll be betrayed. He was crucified, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, down to the minute detail before crucifixion was invented. That he that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah says. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled down to the most minute detail, and more prophecies still yet to come, even from the Old Testament that are waiting to be fulfilled. All of these all of these are just graces that God has given us, revealing to us that if men and women will simply have ears to hear that this is the Word of God. This is not the Word of man. I think of things like, all you have to do is read the Bible and you can see that it's divine. Who in the... Who, what man would condemn men like the Bible does? We exalt ourselves. But God says No. And you know, and some of these, um, we talked about this a few months ago in our equipping hour when we were studying these things, the scriptures. You know, and some of these supposed other gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. And I haven't read these in full, but I've read bits and pieces of them. Um, just go read them. <laughs> just go read them, and you can tell really quickly that this is this is not the Word of God at all. It, it gets really silly and really goofy. But these truths, beloved, and these are just this is just a this is just a a sample. These truths are meant to be a source of encouragement to God's people that what we have is indeed the Word of God. And I will say this, and I will say it very, very, uh, with much conviction. Okay, these truths alone will not convert a sinner that's in rebellion towards God. Okay. We can't argue somebody by giving them evidence. These things aren't bad. But these things alone will not convert a sinner who's in rebellion towards God. Their problem isn't a lack of evidence, but a love of sin. That's what it is. So they need the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They are commanded to repent and believe. And this comes... Really, the understanding that this is Scripture comes afterwards when we're born again. And in closing, uh, before I say my last, my last bit, I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes ever about the Word of God. He says this, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. And that was what I was simply stating. So church, the Bible... The Bible needs none of these things that I just mentioned. All of these outward evidences. Those things are glorious. I'm thankful that we have them. But the Scriptures need none of these things to make them true or to authenticate themselves. Like we talked about early on in the message, the Bible is inherently true. It's inherently true, infallible, meaning there's no possibility of containing error. It's sufficient for our salvation and godliness. And it's our responsibility. It's all people everywhere. It's people's responsibility to believe it and to obey it. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You for just having absolute truth, God. Having the lamp that we can build our lives upon, Lord. We know that that men have been raging and fighting against Your Word, trying to eliminate Your Word, trying to, trying to disprove it. So many men have been born again through their attempts to try to disprove Your Word. And Father, like Your Word says, men are like grass, but Your Word abides forever. And Father, we thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that it is a lamp that guides us. We thank You, Lord, that it is powerful 
that is the means of salvation for those who believe. And Lord, I just pray that we would stand and, and, and live our lives. Lord, to stand and defend Your Word when we need to. That we would be those ones who believe it and obey it and defend it. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the reality of Your second coming. We thank You, Lord, for uh, revealing Yourself and, and, and Christ on that holy mountain. 2,000 years ago, Father, but we thank You even more so, God, for the Scriptures, Lord, that we have in our hands. We thank You for preserving them. We thank You, Lord, for the English translations, Lord, that we have. We thank You for those who were willing to give up their very lives. Lord, to see the the Word translated into the language for the people to read. We thank You for those all those great men who have given their lives, and women, who have given their lives down through the centuries, God, defending Your Word. And Lord, we just praise You for sending Your Son and dying on the cross for our sins. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We love You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.